So the last thing that I made with my butcher box shipment was aloo chicken, and it turned out really well. One of my favorite things is to get the shipment and then open up the New York Times cooking app and see what I want to create over the next few weeks. It helps my creative cooking chops, and both my wife and I really enjoy it. ButcherBox offers a variety of high-quality cuts at an amazing price, plus they have exclusive member deals, and they also have their own recipes, although I am preferential to the New York Times app, but that's just me. And you can sign up today at ButcherBox.com conspirituality and get their special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer plus an additional $20 off. So for that year, you can choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com conspirituality and use code conspirituality to choose your free for a year offer, plus get $20 off your first order. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. Do you want a new podcast to look forward to each week? One that's entertaining, informative, and packed with actionable content? Come on. Of course you do. The average podcast listener has six shows in rotation, so you're most likely not just listening to Conspirituality. And that's totally okay. I'd love to share a podcast to add to your list. The Jordan Harbinger Show is a top-shelf podcast named Best of Apple in 2018. So don't just ignore my suggestion to listen to this one like you probably do with your other friends who tell you to listen to podcasts. Jordan dives into the minds of fascinating people, from athletes to scientists, political activists, mobsters, even hostage negotiators. And Harbinger has an undeniable talent for getting his guests to share never-before-heard stories and thought-provoking insights. Without fail, he pulls out tactical bits of wisdom in each episode, all with the noble cause to make you more informed, a critical thinker, and to better operate in today's world. I was on his show. In preparation, I listened to a bunch of episodes. He's just really good at what he does. Like episode 880 features Ian Bremmer, you know, the top-notch political scientist. And the topic is dealing with the world in disarray. But then you have episodes like his skeptical Sunday format. Episode 882 looked at homeopathy. But he has other episodes on Ayurveda and also the popular pseudoscience of analyzing body language. There isn't a better podcast to listen to casually or seriously to expand your worldview. He's also got a strangely relatable weekly segment called Feedback Friday, where Jordan covers advice on everything from escaping a cult or a psycho family situation to relationships and networking and even to asking for a raise. So point blank, Jordan Harbinger is smart, funny, he's easy to listen to. You'll be pressed to find an episode without excellent conversation, a few laughs, and even actionable advice that you can directly use to improve your life. You can't go wrong with adding The Jordan Harbinger Show to your rotation. It's incredibly interesting. There's never a dull show. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're a fan of workplace comedies like The Office or satire like The Onion, then I have a podcast that I know you'll love. It's called Mega. 
Mega is an improvised satire from the staff of a fictional mega church. That's the premise. Each week, the hosts, Holly Laurent and Greg Hess, are joined by guests, since people like Cecily Strong or Jen Hatmaker, to portray characters inside the colorful world of Twin Hills Community Church, which they describe as a mega church with a tiny family feel. The result is a sharp-witted and hilarious look into the world of commercialized religion using humor to cope with the frightening amount of power that church and religion have. So I very much recommend you checking out Mega's episodes, like the one with Saturday Night Live Cecily Strong, playing Cece String, a hilarious character who's fresh out of jail, uh, and also comedian Jason Mantzoukas, you may find yourself dying of laughter and perhaps inspired to take an improv class yourself. Mega is able to keep you laughing as you think and reflect about the world we live in. You can find Mega on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to Conspirituality. I'm Derek Barris. I'm Matthew Remsky. I'm Julian Walker. You can find us on all of our social media handles. Maybe YouTube is letting us back. We'll find out. Uh, TikTok, Facebook, Instagram, of course. And we're also on Patreon. We're at patreon.com slash conspirituality. You can support us for $5 a month and get access to our Monday bonus episodes. Conspirituality 78, Society of the Conspiracy. Conspiracy theories flourish during uncertain times. They're always with us, passed down through generations like alternate histories, yet they're constantly reinvented when collective stress levels peak. I'll be reporting today on the QAnon spinoff group that's been camped out in Dallas's Dealey Plaza for two weeks, hoping to catch a glimpse of a pantheon of resurrected dead celebrities. In light of the Astro World concert tragedy, which killed 10 people, being interpreted as a ritual satanic sacrifice on social media, Derek wonders if conspiracies are just how we process everything now. Matthew points out the legitimate reasons conspiracy theorists have for their paranoia, while warning against the media's tendency to titillate by misusing the terminology of cult research. He'll also read a bit from Paradise Lost. This is a conversational recap week as we're working on some big shows coming up. This is a wild one, guys. Uh, you know, we had thought that the flagship conspiritualist cult headquarters might be centered in Austin, right? With Mickey Willis, J.P. Sears, Del Bigtree, and someone named Joyous Hart's involvement in the planned Gold Star Oasis commune there. And their proximity to Aubrey Marcus and Joe Rogan, who seem to be sort of the uh, the the suns around which all of these satellites rotate. But another Texas city perhaps has had its cowboy hat thrown into the ring. And that city is Dallas. Well, also, to be fair, though, Austin got another bump over the last couple of weeks with University of Austin at Texas. Oh, God, you had to bring it up. Right, right. The, <laughs> yeah. So so Barry Weiss's scam. Um, and it's yeah. kind of like another area in which culture war, 
bullshit is is finding fertile ground next to conspiracism and conspirituality. I think of it like the three sisters. It's like, you know, you grow corn beside the squash. Uh, maybe the tech bros are the beans. But uh, yeah, by all means, tell us about Dallas. Our, oh, wait, hold on, I'm sorry. I thought we were announcing our classes at the University of Austin, Texas as conspirituality. <laughs> that's well, not that's, this those week? Are the big shows. Those are the big shows coming up, actually. Shit, right? sorry. Yeah, I, okay. I mean, in terms of the culture war nonsense, this is about as bad as it gets. Oy. But back to Dallas, you know, this is not breaking news. It's been widely reported and some of that reporting is speculative. It's in Vice, uh, uh, The Daily Beast, Rolling Stone, Washington Post, etc. But here's the deal. November 2nd, uh, a group of sort of a QAnon spinoff gathered in Dallas at Dealey Plaza and Vice says they're refusing to leave. Uh, they may have land nearby and they have a sort of aspiring cult leader. We'll talk more about him later. I didn't hear about the land thing. Where's, where's, where's their property? Because I thought, I thought everybody was driving there from a long way away and they were putting themselves up in hotels and going broke. No, that that's exactly right. But one of the uh, one of the people who is fairly prominent in this fringe within a fringe group has reportedly uh, uh, through the social media channels offered a piece of land that he has near to Dallas, where oh, they sure. can have a kind of headquarters where they can then wait for yeah. what is supposed to happen, which I'll tell you about right now. So reportedly, hundreds of these folks uh, arrived in Dallas at Dealey Plaza to gather around the white. X that marks the spot on the street where JFK was assassinated. And there was a live stream the night before the big day, supposedly on November 2nd. So on on that evening of November 1st, approximately 100,000 people were watching that live stream that showed the the crowd waiting for this prophesied event. What was supposed to happen? JFK Jr. was going to be revealed as not really being dead, and as being the running mate for Trump now, not only in the 2024 election, but as many of the t-shirts said, Trump, JFK, 2020. You know, I didn't know there was an X there on the concrete. Did you guys know that? Yeah, I've seen it before. It's it's very spooky, right? Yeah, I mean... This is, I mean, this is a bizarre story, and I think there's some humor in it, but I just want to flag that as the child of, of boomers who pretty much watch that happen live, it's hard to think of a more charged X in the middle of some concrete in the whole, like, U.S. Imaginarium. You know, I was, and I saw it, and I was like, what, what is this like? It's so small and unassuming. It looks like it's just done in traffic paint, too, right? Like, it's not, there's nothing... Um, like it, it's weirdly, it's it's like um, not that the city did it, but that it's been sort of like a, a citizen memorial. Um, it doesn't look very special. Yeah, it is fairly nondescript. I mean, I, yeah. I described it as as being quite large, but when I went and had a look at pictures of it, it's actually not that big. It's sitting in the middle of the lane of yeah. the traffic. It's almost like it's it's like, oh, am I not supposed to ride my bike there? Or or is this is this where the traffic director guy goes when the lights are not working? Yeah, right? something. I mean, it's his mark. I just think that for I'm thinking of my mother specifically, like for this generation watching this incredibly aspirational figure, um, so adored, so identifiable, so a, a seemingly approachable to have his gun blown out, skull blown out. Um, I just don't think it goes away. Like I, I know that into her seventies, she would get very quiet, uh, when she talked about it. And, you know, I know that, I know that the, the dying 
hallucinate images from their lives. And I would not be surprised if that was one of the images that came up for her when she was dying, because I know it had such an impact. Or, or maybe the, the image of JFK Jr. in his little sailor suit saluting the cortege. But I think that, that for that sector of, of that generation that goes on to then have their own brains splattered out by QAnon, there's so many things that start at that X. So, you know, we're going to talk about cultism and grifting, but I just want to point out up front that I, I think it's important to recognize that this is, this is an effort at some level to turn this spot and piece of concrete into something meaningful, something that can't be forgotten, something where like anything can be resurrected because I think we mentioned it already. They're, they're, they're not just expecting JFK Jr., right? It's also like Princess Diana, Michael Jackson, like anybody, basically anybody famous and dead. It's a grab bag of, uh, of hopefuls who might be resurrected. And, and I want to say, I think it's, it's always been a kind of ground zero. You're, you're flagging something really important there. Uh, my boomer friends, some of whom have been uh, prone to conspiracies, often talk about that whole period, right, between yeah. Vietnam, like the, lo- the loss of faith in the American government around Vietnam, including the fact that there was there was footage often nightly on the news yeah. that, that that the television becoming so uh, that kind of footage becoming so available on TV had a big influence on the culture and then with all of the assassinations that happened both of the Kennedys MLK etc as well as the impeachment of Nixon uh, there's this loss of innocence that my boomer friends describe during that period and and they'll often refer back to that when they are arguing for conspiracy theories like say 911 truth you know something just occurred to me which kind of blows my mind which is i know that there's all kinds of historical um, wheels turning that create uh, fox news out of the conservative media landscape but it almost feels as though Fox News itself is a kind of technicolor answer to the black and white reality drudgery of Vietnam uh, television, v- Vietnam era television coming back every single night saying this is what is happening to uh, not only people, but to the world and to your image as a country. It's almost like Fox News is trying to answer for that historical, um, I don't know, like... Uh, like sequence of, of, oh my God, we looked at a lot of newsreels uh, and, and the ugliness of the world really came home and we couldn't do anything about it either. As an immigrant here, I just have to say too that the first year I lived in this country was the year of the first Gulf War. And I remember just being uh, really disoriented by the fact that CNN, which I think was fairly new at that time, yeah. was pl- was playing live footage, <laughs> live footage of the bombing of Baghdad. You know, like at at all times of the day, that was that was shocking. That was the first time that ever happened in America on national TV. So that really set the stage for what came next in terms of how we understand and consume warfare from afar. Yeah. And in terms of this, this Dealey Plaza, you know, X marks the spot. It's, it feels like it's already charged with, with a a sense of sacred ground, right? There's a, there is a, an overlap with religious activity there in terms of, you know, this being a site of pilgrimage for people who believe that the truth is out there uh, waiting to be discovered in terms of their conspiracy, uh, their conspiracy investigations. It's also mundane though, because as I was looking at Google maps at the street view, I I don't, I mean, I know that there's a memorial park, but also the street itself is this wide boulevard and you, and the, the cars are, I mean, it's like a, it looks like a 40 mile an hour zone, right? Like yeah, people are just yeah. whizzing by. And 
So it's it's also a place that's kind of run over all the time. <laughs> but isn't that just it, right? Yeah. Isn't, isn't isn't the conspiracy sort of a zeitgeist one in which the 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 outlandish, the diabolical is always hidden just beneath what you think is actually mundane or what you think has been explained away. Yeah, and if you can stop traffic in kind of like a four-lane highway that's otherwise nondescript, except for this white X, then that's really good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's back up here to unpack this for a moment because I found myself going, okay, hold on. Right. These these folks are gathering at the site of JFK Sr.'s death. Yeah. And they're expecting JFK Jr., who has himself been dead since 1999, to materialize somehow. Either he rises from the dead or he turns out to have been, been in hiding all of this time. And then JFK Jr. is going to team up with Trump for last year's election? <laughs> right. Like, what the fuck? Talking about crossover, if you saw... Mickey Willis's last newsletter, he opens by saying the Kennedys are the most important political family in the history of America as a way of setting up his relationship with RFK Jr. Now, I do want to make a correction here because a couple of weeks ago I had said that RFK was waiting for his uncle to return or the people in Dilly Plaza, not RFK, (laughs) were waiting for his uncle to return, but that would be his cousin. So I apologize to all the hopefuls out there about that. Yeah. No, yeah. You were talking, you were, yes. I mean, but there's another one. I mean, my, my parents also remember clear as day, uh, Bobby getting shot in that kitchen Mm -hmm. after I think what was a pretty powerful speech, right? Like I can't, I can't remember the context, but it was during the campaign. Here's the other thing that I was thinking about, like, is this a white people thing and their heroes? Because I, I can't seem to recall ever seeing black people predicting dead civil rights leaders coming back from the dead. (laughs) Very interesting point. Right? Like like MLK, MLK, Malcolm X, Fred Hampton. What like it, I mean, they probably know that the National Guard would be called out if they gathered to conjure <laughs> Martin Luther King at the Lorraine Hotel in Memphis or no maybe doubt. or or but I think it might be something di- deeper, which is that um, like th- these figures are more people than symbols or icons. Uh, they they got stuff done rather than participated in the, in the spectacle. Mm-hmm. They're, like they're more materially here as opposed to celebrity here, and and therefore maybe they're more gone when they're dead. But um, I th- so it feels like civil rights heroes have been allowed to die uh, because they did more tangible things, and not because we're still wishing that they could actually do something. I mean, it just reminds me of um, there's. When my friend Michael Stone died uh, of uh, fentanyl po- poisoning, um, there was a lot of obviously consternation over over how that how that happened and what it meant and you know right and wrong and so on. And and there was this Zen priest who used to tutor him who gave the speech. Um, I think uh, Pat O'Hara, I think her name is in New York. And anyway, she she her point was, you know, when when people are. Uh, when when we when we uh, sort of wonder about people's death when deaths when they're unresolved it's it's there's something about us that we're not letting them die we're not letting them be human and so I was thinking about that too is that is that there's something both unfulfilled but also just kind of um, uh, needy about about this this uh, this wish for these people to come back so that they could continue being celebrities because 
they were never your friends, right? It's like we get stuck in a in a supercharged version of the stages of of denying death, right? Right, right, yeah. exactly. I would also guess part of being unresolved is the fact that I, I'm imagining a good amount of these people don't believe Trump lost the election. Yeah, mm-hmm. so right. magical thinking is baked into this entire story that's happening right now. So how far will you push it? And also not saying that everyone there is religious, but you already have precedent in the idea that your savior is coming back. So there has to be some transference from that idea and then extrapolating from it. It just makes sense that you would then put it onto other people. If one person can come back, why can't others, especially during stressful times? That might be a good way of thinking about why there winds up being two potential JFK juniors mm-hmm. in the QAnon lineup. But we're going to get to that, I think, right? <laughs> we'll get to like, that like, later. Like, yeah. does it, like, actually, more people on side cosplaying as Jesus is better, actually, because... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Okay. It, it's the JFK Junior sweepstakes. Like, who will win? Who right. will turn? Who will? Who will turn out to be the? It's like a, a, a talent show or something. Right. But what about you know uh, Trump Kennedy twenty twenty? I mean, time travel possibilities aside, as you're saying, it's probably a reference to the belief that Trump actually won and will eventually the date keeps getting pushed back be reinstated as the rightful supreme leader leader and savior of America. But now with this resurrected JFK Junior by his side instead of that traitor. Mike Pence. Uh, This is not a new idea, though. This has been circulating since 2019, actually, which probably explains better why those t-shirts exist, because there was something going around the QAnon uh, circles around those boards that uh, at the July 4th Trump rally in 2019... Uh, JFK Jr. would be unveiled as his running mate. And it turns out that this guy named Vincent Fusca, who is a short, messy, unshaven, fedora-wearing Pittsburgh man who often appears behind Trump in, in photos at rallies, he's in the crowd behind Trump, that he must actually be JFK Jr. And the reason he doesn't look like him at all, and he's quite a few inches shorter and obviously not as handsome, is, is all of the surgery he's had to hide his identity. You know, I didn't clock that he was sort of chosen out of the backwash in the speeches. Yep. I didn't I didn't know that part. So he's kind of like, it makes me think of Zelig or something like that. Where, yeah, yeah. Or, or where's, he's a or bystander. Where's, where's, he, he was, so he was a bystander who was a anointed yeah. what on yeah. online through memes yeah. or something like that yeah it's he didn't he never said it he's never claimed it. well then you <laughs> but you got to hand it to him because he took it on right <laughs> well to some extent oh no he went he was he headlined at, at one of the recent QAnon uh oh, conventions did he? oh yeah yeah he was on stage along with the other guy too Savio. Uh, yeah, he didn't go so far as to show up at Dealey Plaza, though. <laughs> so, I don't know yeah. if you saw this, but Tiger King has a season two, and yes. they're following all of the people who uh, who um, were involved with the first one and where they've gone since then. And it, it just, it's why I'm saying that right now is because when you're given an opportunity for your spot in the limelight, you don't know how you're going to react. And when people are all mm-hmm. of a sudden have attention on them, then yeah. they'll just go with it. They'll be like, okay, this is, let's, this is going to work. This will make me money. This will get me in front of people. And that's what this seems like, at least in terms of the, the, the new JFKs. I noticed something interesting along those lines uh, this week. And I don't know if you guys heard this and, and there may be more stories out there about it, but, but the, the lawyer for Kyle Rittenhouse has a documentary film crew along with him 
as he's wait wait a minute. So, but this isn't this is not Lynn Wood. No, this is somebody different. Did Lynn sort of get? He was booted, but okay. Marjorie Taylor Greene called Lynn Wood a Democrat yesterday, which was a fascinating <laughs> development. Oh, okay, right. Well, <laughs> well, I mean that that brings us back around to how it is that uh, that Kennedy could be like, a Democrat, could be the running mate for uh, for Trump, who's like the far right lunatic fringe of the. Well, they, uh, they've uh, got to have party. they've got to have like ongoing purity rituals, right? They're yes, they're not absolutely. going to they're, they're not going to settle because of that. I'm thinking about this uh, time loop thing where it also seems that gathering in Dealey Plaza is a way of reliving other protest moments with Mm. regard to the election because I I mean, it's like a more peaceful version or a more devotional or ritualized version Mm -hmm. of of January 6th in some way. They're storming Camelot in the clouds in a way, right? In a way, right. Like, like we, we, we want it back. We, we want our, our innocent dream of, of, of royalty somehow back. But what I wondered about that Kennedy obsession and if it was new, and you might remember that where we go one, where we go all, that very widespread uh, QAnon hashtag, probably the one they used the most in 2020. Uh, it, it turns out this was a motto used by a group of college-aged boys while being initiated by Jeff Bridges into open sea sailing uh, in this box office flop from 1996 called White Squall, in which they encounter a severe storm and, and then have to sort of prevail against all odds using what they've learned in their initiation into manhood from Jeff Bridges. And it's from that same movie that we get another one of the hashtags, The Calm Before the Storm. And then there's this false idea, I believe it's false, I haven't found any evidence that supports it, that where we go one, where we go all is actually inscribed onto a bell that is on a boat that belonged to John F. Kennedy Sr. called the Honey Fits. Right. So, you know, the, the, the wheels keep on turning. Everything is connected, Julian. That's right. That's right. None of this is really a surprise, though, right? We know that, like, as I was saying before, my friends who, who became 9-11 truthers, when you talk to them, the suspicious nature of the JFK, JFK assassination seems to always be about to pop its head around the corner, right? Back into the left, back into the left, like, uh, like Oliver Stone had, uh, had Kevin Costner say in that movie. When we really embrace one conspiracy theory, it seems that the system of logic it comes with makes others seem more plausible. So 9-11, JFK, QAnon. I wonder what else is on the bingo card. Maybe the moon landing? I mean, it all makes perfect sense if you think about it, right? That this amoral, fortunate son, real estate tycoon sleazeball, Donald Trump, could be seen as a man of the people, a savior in this Republican religion. Uh, and that somehow the iconic assassinated Democrat president could be its patron saint, then why not this long dead son resurrected as a, as a Pittsburgh superfan in a funky hat <laughs> right. who's, who's come to join forces with Trump in this momentous reveal at the holy site of his father's tragic death. It all sounds like a, like a pro wrestling plot, right? But, yeah, totally. Um, but hold on. I mean, like, okay, we've, we've talked a lot about the psych research on the transitive nature of conspiracy theories, uh, how, you know, the susceptibility to one predicts susceptibility to more, but we have to be really careful about grouping as well, because in the same way that belief is transitive, I don't think that debunking can be, uh, you know, and Mm -hmm, my mm -hmm. understanding, my understanding of the JFK assassination is that 
it's it's not a closed book. Like there are a lot of people who aren't satisfied with the Warren Commission, and they're not some kooky fringe. And Biden yep. just delayed a huge document release uh, again for another uh-huh. twenty for another twenty five years or something like that. So, I mean, I, just going back to my mom, there's a gaping wound. I, I don't think she ever would. My mom have answered the question: Was there a conspiracy to kill the president? How would she have answered that? I think she would have been ambivalent, and she would have said it's possible, but I don't know. But she probably would have said uh, the Warren Commission was trash, and we and everybody knew it. Um, and this is not somebody with a conspiratorial bone in her body. So we have this sort of institutional wound, uh, and I think we have to ask, like. To what extent is is obfuscation of the JFK files, you know, part of the soil that QAnon grows in? Because if the deep state didn't kill him, uh, maybe if you stand on that X, you'll get an answer as to why they've done nothing about resolving it. Um, you know, so we've got like this historical uncertainty uh, over generations now, plus time, plus bureaucracy, plus a tanking economy in the great recession, plus the immiseration of all of the political groups that would have been sort of bound together by some sort of class consciousness under, under Kennedy, uh, like all of that is disintegrating. And so the more Camelot fades, the, the, the clearer the deep state appears underneath it, I think. And in a way, this is always the case with conspiracies, right? You have to have some nuggets of truth in there. Yeah, and, and it's the same with cults, right? The, 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 you get indoctrinated into a cult to some extent because what they're offering has some truth to it. it it's meaningful in some way. It meets some needs that you have. Uh, it's, it's the half-truth that becomes so poisonous, not the outright obvious lies. And so with conspiracies, you're, you're going to have things in there that are valid, and you're going to have always unsolved mysteries or or things that just would look fishy to, to anyone. I remember um, Noam Chomsky being asked once at a public appearance by, by a 9-11 truther what he thought about 9-11. And he said, he said, look, with, with an event that big, there are going to be tons of loose ends. It's just so logistically complicated. And if you take every loose end as implying that there's a conspiracy there, well, then you will see a conspiracy. But it may just be that that's how reality is. It's, it's often loose-ended and there, there are things that are, are just complex and overdetermined. Here's one person that I don't believe any progressive is going to rally around hoping for their resurrection. I think that everybody is going to let Noam Chomsky die because he's been of wonderful service. And <laughs> you know when he's, and when he's gone, I think we will just carry this melancholy in our hearts. I don't think that we're going to show up at the New York Public Library and like, pray for his return or something like that. Have you seen him recently, by the way? Yeah. He, he looks like the green man or something like that. <laughs> he has not shaved his face in probably totally. five years. Like, is he 90 years old? I mean, my God, he just, he, he will not stop. It, like, any, I bet he would come on our podcast. Absolutely. I bet, I bet he would come. I bet he's free right now. We should probably text him. <laughs> he's going to be 93 in two weeks. God damn it. He does he does multiple hour long podcasts on a channel that I follow which is very very sort of random like half science half actually half conspiracy theories and he appears on there just to talk about philosophy and politics. Yeah. So yeah, I bet we could get him. The <laughs> oldest marathon runner in the world uh, was 107 in India, I believe. So you can right. you can keep going. Yeah. It's, it's the homeopathy. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> keeps them young. But as I said before, not even uh, Vincent Fushka would show up at Dealey Plaza. Nonetheless, the crowd sang and chanted and waited in the street. They, some of them were hoping there would be a parade. Others said that they thought maybe Lady Di would part the curtains and look down on them. Rolling Stones' uh, Stephen Monticelli captured video of some in the crowd doing a call and response chant. And you guessed it. Did we go to the moon? No. Okay, this is the one that doesn't track, right? Especially if they're sitting there waiting for uh, JFK Jr. Because, JFK, like, yeah. because I mean, the moon landing is a cornerstone of the whole Cold War space program. So, if you love JFK, I don't know how you disbelieve in the moon landing, right? Like, but the, do you know something about real history or not, right? Oh gosh, maybe. Oh, I guess. I guess it's hard to believe that you'd you'd miss that bit when there's so many other bits of ephemera that you're yeah. clinging onto so hard, and so many details that people have memorized. Like, uh, oh, we're going to hear about Gamatria now, right? Yeah, yeah, and and also, you know, we choose to go to the to do these other things and go to the moon, not because it is easy, but because it is difficult. I mean, it's part of an iconic speech. I know. How would you forget that? Yeah. But wait, there's more. the uh, The fringe of the fringe that had gathered here in Dallas have what appears to be a new prophet. This guy's name is Michael Brian Protzman, and he uses uh, a form of numerology called gematria. A bastardized form. A bastardized form, please, because there would be real gematrians out there. Yes, as opposed to the the legitimate gematria that uses numbers to decode the Bible. (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) It has nothing to do with with discredited conspiracy theories, right? Right, yeah. Yeah, totally legit. (laughs) He he claims that uh, he's directly in contact with the Kennedys and he believes they are descendants of Jesus Christ, which he proves via numerology. If everything adds up to the same number, then then everything proves everything else. Uh, He he believes his prophecy will bring in a a thousand years of peace and bingo, ascension into 5D reality. So look, some commentators like BBC's extremism reporter Shayan Sardarizadeh and a friend of the pod, Mike Rothschild, who wrote uh, Q into the storm, are, are, are commenting on Twitter that Protzman and his negative 48 telegram channel are potentially more dangerous as a kind of cult spinoff from QAnon to some extent because there's an identified leader and the way he's interacting with people on the ground. Yeah, I've got some thoughts about that. But I mean, first of all, this guy... Um, where does he come from? He's 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 got. I think somebody mentioned that he has a car theft conviction. Yeah, I saw that as well. I, my understanding of gematria is that you like you have to know the Hebrew to be able to really do it. So I wonder if he's got that on board. Probably. But not. I also heard. I probably. I did hear some of his glossolalia in numbers, uh-huh. and it reminded me of kids doing timetables mm-hmm. and sort of nine nodding along like yeah that's the answer five times uh-huh. five is 25 and <laughs> but it, it's also like extremely easy to fake right oh yeah as as is glossolalia itself i imagine uh but with with a number thing there's only nine digits to remember and then you just sort of free associate because you know anything adds up to anything yeah i didn't i didn't want to find clips of him because it's 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 incredibly boring and and i don't think there's any value there because essentially anytime i've seen him speaking there, there's a little group of people around him looking up at him with starry eyes and nodding and he's just saying things like you know, uh, along the lines of Trump won the election and then he gives the number that that adds up to and then the next thing will be QAnon the storm is coming and he tells you that it adds up to the same number and everyone sort of is like, oh my god the revelation, the, the deep meaning has been shown to us through these numbers. Oh, we gotta go back to Sapolsky there with like the numerology of religious ritual and being, That's being right. a form of OCD, right? Yeah, so in a 
piece last week uh, in Vice, Maureen McNamara, who is one of the faithful in attendance, just she's described as a as a devout QAnon believer, uh, who who became disillusioned with what Protzman was doing. She talks about him controlling. <laughs> <laughs> she's like she, she, she has she's a gonna, She's going to stick with the with the mainstream QAnon folks. She has standards. She has okay, standards. Right. Oh, we shouldn't be mean I'm to her sorry, though, because no. It's, it, no, it's 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 a it's a pretty poignant story that she tells. She talks about him controlling the crowd on the street and preparing them for the moment when the great reveal was supposed to happen. And then, of course, nothing happens. He actually said to her, you're in the perfect spot. You're going to have a great view. Now just move back a little bit right now. Oh God! And then when nothing happened, uh, the next day he tells everyone, you got to go to the Rolling Stones concert that's happening <laughs> you know, nearby. And at the Rolling Stones concert, he said, uh, Mick Jagger would turn out to be revealed. Uh, actually, actually, sorry, let me back up. Uh, Keith Richard, the, you know, the, the eternal kind of zombie heroin addict who, who refuses to die will be revealed to actually be JFK Jr. Mick Jagger will turn out to be Michael Jackson. Uh, and, and on drums will be Prince. So people bought $300 concert tickets to now go and follow this, this, uh, this treasure hunt to, to the next stage of the reveal after it had failed the night before. And McNamara said that many of the pilgrims had come at considerable personal expense. They, many of them had, had camped out on the street the night before. She said there were old people, there were sick people, there were kids. You know, it was a real sense of a, a, almost like a big tent revival, people coming to, to be at this, at this holy healing kind of moment. And that she felt that the people there uh, and this this goes to some of I know your analysis, Matthew. Were there because they felt isolated and rejected in their everyday lives, and they wanted to be with people of like mind, and they wanted to be able to go and have an experience that they could return from and say, "You see, we told you so." But that now they spent a lot of their money. They ran out of money while they were there, waiting, waiting, waiting for the big reveal. And and she described their predicament as not being able to now afford Christmas. This is part of why I'm not particularly scared of this guy. I can imagine him yeah. losing it and shooting them all. But I mean, uh, he has done a shit poor job of actually serving those particular needs and sending them to a Rolling Stones concert when they're already broke and cold and tired seems like a real reach. It's like, oh, go do this. And he's probably yeah. he's probably relieved that they're they're gone for the evening, right? Which is exactly where they're going to sit around the, the barrel fires and ask him questions, you know, because he's run out of numbers or whatever, right? Yeah, and he appears to be, you know, staying in staying in the Hyatt Hotel. Some of the inner, <laughs> some, oh. some of the inner circle are staying with him there. He has a he has like a conference room where he's holding court and he's doing his his gematria kind of uh, sermons. But but check this out. I don't know exactly the timeline. It appears to be the day after the Stones concert. A lot of this was reported just through Twitter videos and 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 people giving personal accounts. But what was shown was Protzman giving strict instructions to the smaller group of faithful who still remained to line up in single file while agreeing to not look up or down or backward as they did so, so that they could have what looked to me like kind of like Darshan with the guru, right? He stood at the front of the line a few feet away from them and one by one they would approach. And at that point, he would give them permission to turn around and look up. And he had, oh, there's more. He had a bird on his shoulder, (laughs) 
he had what 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 appeared to be a parrot on his shoulder while he did this like a live one or like a rubber yes. one yes okay. a live one a live one and then when he would say now turn around and look up there what they would see was part of the architecture behind the book depository from which uh lee harvey oswald fired the deadly shots that there was a pyramid there was a triangular structure, and this was the the this was evidence that the Illuminati were behind uh, the assassination, or at least the false narrative of the assassination. And and some uh, who were in attendance also shared another account of a similar moment where he had people lined up, told them where they could and couldn't put their eyes, and then would point to the colors of the sunset and say that those colors proved that the patriots were in control. So there, there is some creepy cultish shit going on here. Right. I mean, how, how long it's going to last? Yeah, okay, so we'll get to that. Yeah, and then in addition, of course, he sold uh, T-shirts with negative 48 on them that people clamored to buy. I want an NFT. I want an NFT of the bird. That's what I want. <laughs> I want a fucking close-up of the bird and NFT it. That would be great. And then at, at the same time, he's on his social media channels uh, asking for donations to his 100,000 plus followers for the inauguration ball so that people who are there on the ground can afford tuxedos and ball gowns because the inauguration ball is happening anytime now. So the number of people has ebbed and flowed. But the weird thing that was being noted by, by people there is that as of this past Monday night, which is two weeks after the failed Kennedy appearance, Hundreds have once again gathered with Protzman at Dealey Plaza. They were shown in a video posted to Twitter, unironically singing, We Are the World. And according to vice journalist David Gilbert, a member of Protzman's group, as we talked about earlier, who identifies as a rapper, and yes, I'm being snarky there, and goes by the name Prime Minister, P-R-Y, Prime Minister, has All offered right. up a piece of land near Dallas where he says they can set up headquarters. What are we doing with a Patreon account? There are so many other ways we can be making money right now. <laughs> totally. <laughs> totally. And then just one last thing on this topic, because this is related. Uh, in the Daily Beast, Will Sommer talked about, as you noted, Matthew, another QAnon influencer. He goes by Juan O. Savin. He's he's appears on a lot of videos with Roseanne Barr doing conspiracy kind of uh, uh, rambles, and he's really close with Jim Caviezel. He's toured around the country with him. Oh boy! Doing promotion for Sound of Freedom, which is Caviezel. If, if people don't know, this is the guy who played Christ in Mel Gibson's movie The Passion of the Christ, uh-huh. and he has a documentary about child sex trafficking called Sound of Freedom. Yeah, he's, terif- documentary, he's terrifying. A, a dramatization. He's terrifying. He's going to make a run for Congress. Yeah. And this guy, uh, Juan Osavin, has apparently been strategizing with MAGA celebs Mike Lindell, Patrick Byrne, and Jim Hoft to get hand-picked candidates into Secretary of State positions around the country, no doubt for the next wave of Stop the Steal recounts, because they can, these can be people in place who refuse to, uh, to participate with the Electoral College. I'm thinking about the, like, the We Are the World and wondering if they took turns at the mic because they are, because I think when I think of that I, I I think of Michael Jackson so that's got to be in the mix there right because he's dead, he's dead and gone but you can you can step up and 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 rip it out yeah I mean I think we can all hear and if if we're of our generation you can hear the different voices taking their turns on we are the world right it's such a right. it's such an iconic moment there's a choice we're making we're saving our own lives Do you remember this, the was it was it uh, Gild, Gildoff himself who was saying to Neil Young uh, you know you're flat man and Neil Young is saying uh, no that's my style that's my style that's right anyway listen look I I respect 
uh, Mike Rothschild and everyone else reporting on this and taking this seriously, I do want to push back a little bit on the cult angle because Protzman, okay, I didn't know that he was staying in the Hyatt. Um, who knows how, how much he's bringing in online. But with regard to uh, his on-the-ground resources, um, they seem to be really small or he's parsimonious with them and he's got a limited bag of tricks. Like he can't pull off the bird thing more than a few more times, right? And this yeah. failure of prophecy gig where you double down after the failure, it doesn't work immediate, uh, indefinitely. Uh, and usually it works when people have a long-term relationship with the group or the person. So, you know, winter's coming, uh, the people who are gathered there are running out of money, um, you know, he's he's taking in online donations, okay, but you you just can't keep people standing on the grassy knoll forever. There's no compound. I mean, I'm sure this is why they're talking about uh, an off-site property. They've got to look forward to something like that. But everybody who went there uh, has driven there. They can drive away when they get tired. Uh, there's no word. Have you heard any word of them being armed? No. He's not offering any amenities. Uh, I mean, every in-real-life cult at least pays lip service to giving people snacks, right? Feeding and housing devotees. Uh, so, st- so standing around in the plaza, yeah. having to go pee, and then probably shitting yourself because you took ivermectin does not make for cultic glue. Uh, and so in some of the more panicked commentary, again, not from Mike or, or uh, Will Summer, I, I detect a little bit of, please let this be a cult, almost a kind of wish fulfillment thinking. And I think just as the JFK truthers want him to show up, I also think there's probably a little part of the left that wants to see them blow each other up to prove that they're nuts, uh, to get rid of them, to prove that they're off the island. And I think the more polite version of that probably is fantasizing about them all catching COVID. And I really think that cult researchers... Um, or people in that milieu have to be really mindful of this particular thought, which is, ooh, that looks like a cult, because it's a little <laughs> bit porny, right, to be honest. Uh, and, you know, if we think back to uh, Tina Guyan um, uh, appearing on our podcast and his essay with Becca, Becca Williams on moral outrage porn, they define porn as the pleasurable thing you don't have to be responsible for. And I think cult calling porn is that, you know, there's this validating pleasure in calling Pronsman a cult leader. Um, but nobody's actually taking responsibility for what that means or the kind of care that people would need if it's true. So I just want to say that. I think what will be the glue between these two stories we're covering this week points to what you were just talking about, Matthew, in that people will automatically ascribe something as a cult if it gives any sort of markers of it. And the same thing goes true with, with this story, which is conspiracies. Like, so everything has become a conspiracy now, at least in the view of, of people, especially in the social media age. So nothing is as it seems, which is one of the defining characters, characteristics of conspirituality. Any event now is going to have that feeling and there will be people to start promoting that idea. So right. I would also say conspiracies as much as cults, we have to watch out for, but this brings us to astral world. Right. So you have 50,000 people who show up in Houston to see this festival and it's headlined by a native of Houston. So we're still in Texas here. Uh, we're going to hit <laughs> all Austin, Dallas, Houston. Well, maybe we'll get to McAllen by the end. Uh, Travis Scott, so a surge of fans were caught in the middle of what was effectively a mosh pit. And there were hundreds of injuries, 10 deaths. 
Uh, eight of them at the concert, two later died in the hospital. Uh, and the incident I've heard has, call, has made some call for general admission reform. And I want to address that briefly because having worked in music festivals and having performed at dozens of them, that's just very reactionary to me. A, a festival that is done properly with proper security protocols does not need any sort of reform. Most people can be in large crowds and handle themselves. Or okay, I've again experienced this. I would say overall in attendance, maybe a hundred festivals in my life. It's very much part of my upbringing. So the reactionary nature of it was a little bit much. Now that said, what happened there should be pointed out as a phenomenon, which is called group flow. And we usually associate flow states and group flow with positive experiences. For example, research on group flow, when musicians perform together, their brainwaves sync up and they act as one unit. But there's also potentially negative consequences. So I think Mm -hmm. back to covering a festival in Casablanca, Morocco, where one of the headliners that one night was 50 Cent. And... 100,000 people turned out to see him. And I was in the photo pit right in front of the stage uh, covering it. And what I noticed was all of the security were just people younger than me. I'm talking like late teens, early 20s. And they weren't watching the crowd. They were turned around Mm. watching the stage. (laughs) (laughs) And I had in college, I had worked in security at festivals and concerts. So when you're up there, the, the number one rule is don't turn and look at the performer, watch what's in front of you to pull people out of the pit, whatever that was. I left to go to another venue because it was in multiple areas of, of that city uh, in Casablanca. And I'm sorry, it was Rabat that this festival was in. And uh, I heard later that the crowd and security all charged the stage. And all of a sudden, in a swarming moment, they were on the stage with 50 Cent. And this is actually not the first time. 50 Cent performed somewhere else in Africa, and I don't want to misname the country, but where someone jumped up and grabbed his gold chain off of his neck. So Mm. security is very important. Uh, And when it's not done properly at a festival, you will get incidents like this. Now, to highlight what what I think happened at Astroworld, I had the pleasure this week of being on The Daily Show. It will drop soon, but with Jordan Klepper. And between filming, I had the opportunity to talk to him for a while. And I asked him what it was like being at the Capitol on January 6th. And he actually talked about this phenomenon of group flow and the negative consequences. And he said, you know, Mm. there was this moment where you have the Proud Boys and they seemed to really know what they were doing by breaking down the barriers. Like they didn't hesitate. They went right to it and did it. And then all of a sudden, hundreds of people behind them are looking like, is this okay? Is this okay? And then they just swarm and they just all collectively make a decision. This has happened a number of times with concert festivals. You know, Woodstock 69 is always romanticized as being peace and love, but there were two deaths. One person was run over by a tractor. Uh, There was almost a mass electrocution that occurred. Uh, There were at least four documented cases of rape of women that happened right in the crowd. Yeah, let's just put a pin in the word documented because I think that's a key word. I'm betting it was way, way more common than that. 
I believe yeah. so. And there was yeah. also a group of anarchists that tore down fencing to let people in for free, which also happened at Astral World. So the 50,000 crowd was even more than that. So again, pointing to the lack of security. Um, there was the Who concert in 1979 in, at the Riverfront Coliseum in Cincinnati, where 11 people were killed in a human stampede. Woodstock 99, watch the documentary. It was oh, a shit man. show. Numerous Ugh. cases of sexual assault and rape and problems all across the board were there. Also, I'd just like to point out for the listeners, if you haven't seen, is it on Netflix or is it on um, HBO? It might be Hulu or Netflix. Hulu, I, I yeah. forget right now. Anyway, um, it's well worth watching, but please take care of yourself while you watch it. Um, the the sort of devastating arc of that festival is so um, fascinating to watch, but also I didn't realize how connected the turn from late nineties grunge rock to whatever came after was so kind of resonant and influential with the, um, all mm-hmm. of the sort of underbelly of what we're actually dealing with mm-hmm. now, especially as it's emerged from uh, the early internet. Um, it's like, it's almost like the music version of uh, Dale Barron's study of uh, the Chans or something like that. Anyway, fantastic documentary. I had no idea. And there was a moment in that documentary where the, it was getting out of control and the producers asked the Red Hot Chili Peppers to tone things down mm-hmm. oh, yeah. and they mm-hmm. went out and actually ramped things up, which is very reminiscent of what Travis Scott did in the sense that in 2017, he had another incident where a man was paralyzed. He had to do a payout to two people in the crowd. So this isn't the first thing he's known for inciting riots during the performance, which is exactly what you shouldn't be doing. And thankfully on Twitter, I've noticed a number of people posting all of these times, like when Kurt Cobain pointed out someone feeling up a woman in the crowd and stopped the show. Like, like you, right, you right. can see what's going on from that vantage point. Uh, finally, uh, Ross Kilda was very well known in Denmark in 2000, where nine people were killed during a Pearl Jam performance, who, fantastic band, but not known for inciting riots. Yeah. Uh, but again, just indicative of that group flow that happens. Two, so two two quick things there. One, one, I just think it's worth mentioning that that, Pearl, that uh, uh, Red Hot Chili Peppers went out after being asked to calm things down because the crowd was was setting things on fire and destroying the infrastructure of the of the festival they went out and played Jimi Hendrix's fire Mm, Uh, let me stand next to your fire right and just as as a just completely egging the whole thing on and the other thing I just wanted to mention is I, I know there's there's research out there and and the psychology of this and even like the the legal theory around the psychology of crowds is something that's been looked into quite deeply and this has a long history of you know people having different opinions and, and arguments about it how at a certain point in a crowd when you cross a threshold into taboo behavior and into into violence that that it it seems to be pretty easy if you're in a crowd like that to get swept up in whatever is happening and to have it sort of be normalized like oh this is just what we're doing now which is terrifying well identity is contextual you know you mm-hmm. there's been plenty of neuroscience research showing that you might think that you are one thing all of the time but it's always context dependent and environmentally dependent so who you're with and where you are matters and the same holds true for crowds so if you think well i would never do that chances are you don't know that until you're actually in the experience of the crowd because you are not the same 
person, you become part of the group at that part point. And if you don't consciously step away before it starts, there's a great increased likelihood that you will become part of that swarm. Well, you also don't want to step away because it's the nature of the experience to want to disappear into that group yeah. flow. So if it's if it's going south, it's really too late. And so it seems to me that the answers are really about preparation and, and infrastructure beforehand, right? Like you would Absolutely. never have you would never have fencing that could be overcome and so that the crowd so that there's the capacity is 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 over numbers or something like that you would never i don't know what you would do but it seems like you should be able to plan for that right absolutely it also reminds me of the osho ashram it reminds me of rajneesh of course and of those kinds of dionysian ecstasies right and getting into those shared group flow states and then all of the reports that that were you know suppressed but that you that eventually came out about how in those big group processes people right yeah, people yeah. would get would get their arms broken. They'd get they get the shit beaten out of them. They'd get attacked sexually. All of that. Yeah, and because it's happening in the ashram instead of in a public venue that has its own insurance protocols and the police are involved or something like that, nobody ever hears yeah. about those particular stories. They they get absorbed back into the mythology of the group. So in in a way, the group flow of the chaotic Rajneeshpuram meditation is protected by its own narrative. There's no like there's no oversight. There's no way that people can examine it after. Words. Yeah, so less regulation and, and more sacralization yeah. of a range of, of awful things. Yeah, right. It points to something, one of your favorite terms, Matthew, which is late stage capitalism as well. And when that enters the music industry, you know, something like Coachella lost money for five years. And that's actually built into the business plan when you're mm. uh, producing festivals that you want to hit profitability, hopefully at year five. That said, there are a lot of vendors to pay along the way of a festival. But now that Coachella is a hundred million dollars a year uh, venture for two weekends and brings all this money into that valley, it, it there has been such a capitalization of certain festivals that are now occurring where a lot of them don't make money. But when you're talking about the level of having Drake behind you and Travis Scott, who's one of the biggest artists in the country, and then Golden Voice, it's just, there's such an immense amount of money. Now, point to your point, Julian, where the Red Hot Chili Peppers were never held accountable. And in fact, most people didn't know until the documentary. Uh, Travis Scott, Drake, Golden Voice, they're all being sued for $750 million right now. So there will be some accountability that's happening for this event. And I hope that's precedent for how people treat security and price inflation and all of those things in terms of festivals moving forward. So I know it's a bit of a music history, but this is all in the context of the fact that after the event, the conspiracy theories came and that's where we've landed. So you have Pastor Greg Locke, who jumped onto TikTok to proclaim that the entire performance was an elaborate satanic ritual and of his course, video was viewed over a hundred thousand times uh others on tiktok called the concert a portal to hell and hey we're back to the illuminati there was the illuminati <laughs> references in his lyrics travis scott's lyrics apparently there's also the piece here i've seen photos aerial photos of the stage and the and the way everything was set up that suggests that it was it was it had sort of satanic overtones in terms of the symbology right you mean that it looked cool <laughs> 
<laughs> it was set up to look that it cool. looked like an inverted cross. Okay. That the, that the stage itself looked like an inverted cross. And there was some other stuff. Yeah, okay. I, I don't remember exactly what. Yeah, just, you well, know. People immediately pointed to the satanic panic of the 1980s. Julian, uh, you've covered it, Matthew. You've covered parts of it on the podcast before. And while QAnon and child trafficking, fear-mongering of this 80s crossover, I feel is just too broad of a comparison but uh, Ali Berland, who covers a lot of QAnon and conspiracy theories for Mother Jones, he points out that conspiracies are just how we process things now, uh, meaning that every event in the news, as I mentioned at the beginning, is now seen through the lens of conspiratorial thinking. And I pulled this from the article where he writes, Conspiratorial theories aren't necessarily incited by a specific incident. Someone can just post something weird online and people were one with it, like the false accusation that Wayfair trafficked children in armoires. Uh, many such theories have layered and bleed together in what Anna Merlan, friend of the pod as well, described in Vice as a conspiracy singularity. She's really good at coining terms, which is the place where many conspiracy communities are suddenly meeting and merging, a melting pot of unimaginable density. Merlin said Merlin, I'm sorry, Anna. Merlin wrote those words to make sense of what was happening early on in the pandemic. But since then, the trend has both persisted and worsened. Um, I want to flag a topic we're going to be addressing in more depth in December, which is specifically the longstanding conspiracy theories that have existed in white evangelical communities in America since the 1950s. Uh, given that the three of us broker in wellness spaces, which is predominantly couching Eastern philosophies, we haven't covered as much of the Christian influence. But when we mentioned in the show notes, we have some big shows coming up. That includes a number of episodes where we discuss various aspects of Christianity, including the persistent media push of certain Christian organizations, which really helped to inform the creation of Fox News in the mid-90s, and how that has primed the American brain to think conspiratorially. Now, that said, I want to hear your guys' opinion about uh, Ali's theory is everything going to be a conspiracy theory moving forward? Well, I, th I think there there are people who are are always going to find a conspiracy angle on current events, and it it does the, the research does show that in times of great social upheaval and uncertainty, and also times of technological change, which we certainly have, you know, with with what's happened in the digital landscape over the last 10 or 20 years, conspiracy theories will really flourish. Uh, the research that I'll include in the show notes here from uh, Van Pruyen and Douglas have a 2017 article that talk about exactly that. Uh, and, and, and they also talk about how even in times when the crisis has calmed down, the conspiracy theories are p passed on as cultural narratives and alternative histories sort of from generation to generation, and then they get reinvented. It's like they go in and out of hobby status, right? Yeah. There's, there's, a, there's an activity that you can do, and then it's kind of modeling at home, uh, and then you can go out and do it, and then it's modeling at home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, be, it, it becomes popular, right? And so, and so then places that, that uh, uh, outlets that will allow you to engage in that hobby spread up all over the place because there's increased demand. And the demand, I think, is because uh, times are uncertain and people are looking for explanations. Uh, Yale professor Jason Stanley, who I've talked about on the pod before, 
wrote a book called How Fascism Works. And he also talks about how fascist propagandists deliberately sow mistrust in institutions, mistrust in journalism and the media, and spread conspiracy theories as part of how they sort of uh, uh, get people engaged in the populist activity that underlies uh, fascism coming into power. And, and part of how they do this is the notion that there's been a glorious past uh, that we've lost somehow. They have an anti-intellectual bent about them and that the the dominant group is somehow the victims, right? So we recognize all of this from the stuff that we cover right. and that then there are fantasies of punishment and, and somehow regaining a, a muscular male virility. A, at the a, a same past. time. Yeah, punishment and yeah. regaining virility at the same time, right? Yeah, well, well, and also that that um, once we have regained this masculine virility and returned to our traditional roles, then we will be able to punish right. these terrible, uh, amoral, um, degenerate, unclean, perverted, parasitic people, whether they're immigrants or or the cabal who are who are sex trafficking children, etc. Yeah, so Christian, and so all of. Yeah. And so all of this is, it's, it, yeah, so very Christian, right? Very, so filled with, with compassionate regard right. and Christ-like qualities. Right. Right. Yeah. And so I just, I want to mention here too, that another piece of, of, um, conspiracy psychology, and this comes from, uh, Professor Douglas, who, who is also featured in that Ryan Prien article that I mentioned, she talks about three aspects of what makes people susceptible. Uh, the first is epistemic, that there is some sense of gaining knowledge and certainty in, in, around issues that are confusing or disorienting. And that, that the research shows that people who are not necessarily less intelligent, but less educated are more prone to these kinds of explanations because they're not really well versed in how to differentiate on the sources of information that they're that they're reaching for. Um, she talks about existential reasons that there's a sense of loss of autonomy and wanting to regain power and control and also wanting to explain why I have this horrible feeling of, of losing a sense of, of power and control. And then lastly, that there's a social um, aspect to what makes conspiracy theories appealing. And that has to do with group identity, right? If, if I can find an identity within a group that affirms that we are special, we are in the know, we are outside of the, the mainstream kind of hypnosis, we've woken up. And, we're, and, and that also this special group is being underappreciated and rejected. And so we have, we have sort of a cause, right? We have something to push back against. So yeah, I think in that sense, we're in a time where an activity that, that um, is, is always happening is particularly amplified. And for, for many people, it becomes the lens through which current events is interpreted. So Derek, I've, I do have some thoughts about your question, but I wanted to just uh, preview by adding to your Astro World report this thing about the the rumored syringe punctures uh, at the moment of the stage rush or in the middle of the chaos. There was 
a report or maybe several reports that a security guard had felt a pinprick in their neck uh, and immediately thereafter had collapsed. Uh, and this blossomed immediately into a conspiracy theory about people running around with with fentanyl needles poisoning, uh, you know, security guards randomly. Uh, I think the police chief actually came out and and uh, sub- not substantiated it, but he but he cited it as a as something that was being investigated. But then, of course, it was taken back because there was no evidence. Um, and Annie Kelly, uh, talking about it on uh, QAA, pointed out that it was really interesting that that becomes a fixation point in the midst of, obviously, anti-vax uh, conspiracism, that you know, the, the needle becomes visualized as a, as a weapon in an actual sort of urban warfare, which is pretty interesting because like the optics of that, of being stabbed in the neck by somebody randomly uh, at a public event, they kind of reverse the clinical scene, the process of getting a vaccination. And, and, you know, so that's just, that's interesting to me because the reality of being vaccinated is not mayhem at all. It's actually, you know, being managed and processed. Like the second shot that I got was at, um, I think it was at the North American record setting day here in Toronto at the Air Canada Centre where the Maple Leafs play and the Raptors play. And I don't know, they vaccinated, I don't know, 50,000 people in the building that day. And we got 20 minute slots and there was just sort of this endless snaking line. Like you were going to the sort of shortest basketball game in your life. (laughs) And, and it was very orderly. And there was this team of, uh, of, of, um, of admins standing there with iPods ready to sign you in and everything was completely flawless. And also because it was at the stadium, it was kind of fun. But I was imagining that like, if it wasn't such a, a, a jovial atmosphere, it was really the picture of absolute managerial perfection of people just sort of calmly filing through the line in a way that would make the anti-vax propagandist talk about like, you know, sheep to the slaughter and, you know, all of this stuff. So it's, it's, it's weird because the, the mayhem of that fantasy that the needle is now a public weapon, actually, I think it tells us something about what people are really scared about, which is that um, being vaccinated is very mundane. You know, and in other commentary that I listen to on this thing, um, I, I tend to agree with uh, a lot of it, uh, especially on on Chapo Trap House. That here the conspiracy theory is really a way for the explanation for the tragedy to be way more attractive than the ugly truth that these people just got chewed up by greed and cost cutting and shitty planning and people being you know and capitalists being capitalists in the in the event planning industry um because that's just too awful it's just mundane right and um you know some other thoughts like one one thought i had was uh, that as a gen xer i <laughs> like I don't think it can make sense for a broad base of consumers who are not all evangelical to be interested with satanic ritual abuse material without finding it funny or ironic, right? It's like, I don't know how long, uh, you know, people who are not invested in a church structure 
are going to say, oh yeah, that's really spooky. Even on TikTok, like where, where, you know, irony is sort of like the, the top menu choice when I think people are doing their, their videos. But, but Matthew, I, I can't help but wonder if everything old is new again for a generation who's being exposed to these uh, memes, mm-hmm. the, yeah. these tropes for the first time. Well, certainly that's that's one of the points that Abby Richards keeps making all the time with her um, uh, with her own activism work on TikTok is that uh, there is that with each wave of conspiratorial thinking, there's this kind of like incredible, fresh, innocent naivety that's that's being sort of mobilized to push the story forward. Um, but yeah, I mean. I, I, between our two stories, I see this uh, connection between the kind of dreary concrete of Dealey Plaza and this poorly organized concert venue that both of these places need a kind of surplus of imaginative input to feel like they do something for something to matter. And, you know, I'm thinking that for you know, people like Pastor Locke, whoever he is, we also have to think about projection and displacement because what could be more exciting to, to, to the evangelical preacher than evidence that their values are tangible and engaged in the world? You know, I'm sure that there's a lot of folks in his shoes who wish they were there so that they can battle Satan directly, right? And, you know, not to put too much of too much lipstick on a pig, but I think it's worth remembering that going way back, uh, Satan embodies freedom from the cruelty of an authoritarian hierarchy. Uh, he is a figure who operates in a place of personal autonomy. I mean, does this sound familiar? <laughs> uh, you know, so one basic interpretive rule I apply is pretty simple that whatever somebody who's pious is terrified of, they actually want. Uh, and so I think, Contemplating that is appropriate in the lead up to our Christianity December because our heritage here really is thick with this kind of internal splitting, usually around bodily denial. So happy no fap November, boys, <laughs> uh, and to all of the proud boys out there. And I think I'll add with, I just end with with um, John Milton because every time uh, Satan comes up, I think of Paradise Lost. So book one, lines 221 to 270, uh, Milton writes, is in the voice of Satan, Lucifer, is this the region, this the soil, the clime, said then the lost archangel, this the seat that we must change for heaven, this mournful gloom for that celestial light. Be it so, since he who now is sovereign can dispose and bid what shall be right. Farthest from him is best whom reason hath equaled, force hath made supreme above his equals, and farewell happy fields where joy forever dwells. Hail horrors, hail infernal world, and thou profoundest hell receive thy new possessor, one who brings a mind not to be changed by place or time. The mind is its own place, sound familiar? (laughs) And in itself can make a heaven of hell and a hell of heaven. What matter where, if I be still the same, and what I should be, all but less than he whom thunder hath made greater? Here, at least, we shall be free. The Almighty hath not built here for his envy, will not drive us hence. 
Here we may reign secure, and in my choice to reign is worth ambition, though in hell, better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live.